Team, thank you, choir. Uh, all of you who have shared with us this morning in music that's special. We have some more special music coming later on, and I am looking forward to that. Uh, but if you have your Bibles, take them and let's turn to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit. We, we already sang about the name of Jesus, and it's apropos that we sang that because we're talking about the name of Jesus today. We're talking about who he is and what he's done and, and how important to us. Uh, there was apparently a dad with some of his children, and they were out putting up a manger scene in their front yard. Have you seen some of those this year? Uh, I've seen one or two. There aren't very many large manger scenes, but there are a few out there. And this dad was out there with his kids, and he was putting them up, and he had Joseph, and he was putting that last pole that would stabilize Joseph, and his seven-year-old son came running out, and he says, Daddy, 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 guess who's missing? His dad said, whoa, what? I, I don't know. Who's missing? What's missing? Baby Jesus. We can't find baby Jesus anywhere, Daddy. And if we don't find baby Jesus, what's the use in having all the rest? We don't need it. And I would tell you today, when we look at Christ, Christmas, if we don't include Jesus in our Christmas, what's the use in all the rest? Because it really has no meaning at that point. I mean, we have a lot of frivolity and some fun time, but there is no real basis for why we do it. And I think as, as we come to this last Christmas of the decade, it's amazing, isn't it? 19, 2019, and, and this is the last one. I, I just want to talk a little bit more about who Jesus is. I, I'm not going to deal so much with his birth as a child, as, a, as an infant. That's what we celebrate, isn't it? We celebrate the coming of, uh, of Jesus as a baby and and uh, we have songs like Away in the Manger and, and different songs that talk about his, his birth. But the real key to Christmas has to do with the advent of God into humanity. Because that's what it's about. You know what? Easter, we wouldn't have Easter if it wasn't for Christmas. Because without Christmas, we wouldn't have Jesus. And without Christmas, we wouldn't have a Savior. And so it's important that we come back and we look at who Jesus is and how he relates to us and uh, the importance of it. You know, in the, in the Bible, there are a lot of different prophecies. It's kind of like uh, this passage in Isaiah 9. It tells of the coming of Jesus and who he is. And it was written about 700 years before he came. I always think that's interesting. You know, about a fourth of the Bible is prophecy. Some of it happened immediately. Some was when Jesus Christ came back, and there is still a lot of prophecy that hasn't been fulfilled yet. But the one thing about prophecy that has been fulfilled, it's been filled, fulfilled 100% in the way it was written. It's, it's, it's never different. Uh, there was a man by the name of Peter Stoner. He, uh, he died a number of years ago, but I thought it was interesting. He wrote a book, Science Speaks, and uh, he was... Uh, Amy, just so you know, he was professor emeritus at Westmont College. So uh, he goes back to the school where uh, we attended, and uh, he was there before I was. But he wrote this, and he was studying. He was a math teacher and a, and a science teacher, and he was studying the, the potential or the possibility of prophecies coming true, especially a number uh, coming true at once. And he, he said if you take eight prophecies, and you see those eight prophecies Fulfilled, coincidentally fulfilled, it would work out to the probability to about 10 to the 17th power. I, I don't know how he figured all that out, but that's what he came up with. That's the idea of 
one with 17 zeros before it or 100 quadrillion. I don't know. I can't wrap my mind around those kinds of numbers. But that all happened with Jesus' birth. There were that many prophecies that came true. And, and the one we're looking at this morning is uh, 700 years before he was born. And so I just want to read to you this morning from this passage. It's uh, Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. And it says, For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, there'll be no end to the increase of his government or peace of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts is going to accomplish this. And as I mentioned, uh, so often we love to see Jesus in the manger or see him hanging from a cross as a convicted criminal. But if that's all there really is to Christmas or Easter, uh, we've missed the point. Because it talks about who God is, and that's what this passage is speaking of. And, in, and it begins here in the sixth verse, and it says, The child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. It, it's just the idea that he's wonderful in his person, who he is. Wonderful has the idea of, well, I went through a fast foods restaurant the other day, and uh, the gal was talking to me, and I'd say, I want this or that, and she'd say, oh, that's awesome. You know, she really loved that word awesome. I thought that went out probably in the 90s or whatever with the Valley Girls, but she really liked the word awesome. Do you know what awesome means? Ah. Oh inspiring, amazing, beyond comprehension. That's what it's talking about when it talks about Jesus here as being wonderful. He's beyond our comprehension. We can't even begin to comprehend who this individual is. He is so amazing and so great. And it says in those first few words, he was given as a gift. A son will be given to us. You know, I think... Uh, practical example of what God did for us is our own gift giving because when we care about somebody and they're important to us we want to give them a gift that is equal to who they are and it really doesn't have so much to do with what it costs but it has to do with the heart in giving it has to do with the attitude in giving and why we give and that that should be the case at Christmas if we simply give because we have to because whoa I'm gonna I'm gonna look bad if I don't give we give for the wrong reason but God gave because he loves us. And it says he gave his son. This is, a, this is the greatest gift that would ever come into being. You know, there was a, a little girl, and she was talking to her mom, and, and uh, she asked her mom about the meaning of Christmas. And her mom said, oh, Christmas is all about the birthday of Jesus Christ. And he's going to come to earth, and, and he'll be here. And she thought, oh, okay. Well, if it's Jesus' birthday... And we're celebrating his birthday. Why don't we give the gifts to Jesus? And the mother said, well, because when we give gifts to one another, it shows our love and our compassion, our caring for one another. And they just kind of dropped it there. That was it. And the little girl was satisfied at that point. Came Christmas Eve, and Mom saw the little girl come out of her bedroom, and she had this package that she had wrapped. It probably wasn't beautifully wrapped, but it was wrapped. It looked good. It was a box, and she had wrapping paper on it. And her mom said, well, what's that? 
Oh, it's a gift for Jesus. He'll come and he'll unwrap it while we're sleeping. I know he'll come and get it while we're sleeping. And, and the little girl put it under a tree and her mom thought, man, I don't want her to be disappointed. I don't want her to think Jesus didn't care about her gift. So she, she opened it. She said, I got to see what she's giving. And she opened it and here was this box and it was totally empty. And she couldn't figure out what her little girl had done. Why did she do this? And so the next morning, when they were getting up to unwrap their presents, the little girl came running out, and she was so ecstatic. And there was the box, and it was empty. And she's, oh, he came, he came, and he opened my gift. And, oh, it's so wonderful. And, and her mother was a little perplexed. And she said, I, I, I don't understand. What did you give to Jesus? The little girl said, well, he probably has everything he needs. I don't think he needs anything else. And she said, and, I, and I'm just a little girl. I don't have much to give. And I thought about it, and I gave him a box of love. You see, that's what God gave to us in Jesus Christ. He gave us the gift of his love. He gave us the gift of his compassion. He understood our needs. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 uh, passage that talks about God's gift and uh, we know another verse also that that goes along with this but in first John 4 9 it says by this the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him it's because of his love. We know John 3.16. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I, I go back to that verse time and time again because it's really central to the gospel message of how much God loves us. And, and you know, it, it declares uh, the gift was great, but it also declares the value of the recipient. Because if God gives us a gift that great and that amazing, it says you and I are worth that in his eyes. It talks about who we are in the eyes of God. If somebody comes along and says, I have no worth, I have no value, they're really ignoring the gift that God gave for them because they don't understand that. That, that what God is saying is, you are worth my son to me. Passage, unto us a son was given. And so Christmas is a celebration of of the giving of Jesus Christ. It's a statement of your value and my value in God's eyes, and he cares about us and loves us. There's another thing about that gift that Jesus is unique, it's wonderful, and that is that he was God's son. And uh, you look into Scripture, and time and time again, it calls him his son. In fact, I, I understand in the New Testament, there are 43 times that Jesus is called the son of God. But in, in Luke chapter 1, we read this earlier, when the angel came to Mary in the 35th verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 35, it says, The angel answered and, said to, and answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. And you know it speaks of his deity. We understand, theologically, they say that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. He's not just half God and half man. But he's fully God 
In fact, his deity is seen back in Colossians, and we go back to this passage periodically as well. In the 15th to the 17th verse, it says he is the image. That is the exact representation, the icon of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And is before him, or before, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Corwin's going to be teaching that course on, on cults and other religions. And the primary thing that you're going to find as you begin to look at the cults and the other religions is their view of Jesus. And they just do not see Jesus to be the Son of God as the, as the Bible teaches him to be. And that's the thing that is, is going to make a difference. And so Jesus is 100% God. He's also 100% man. If you go back to Isaiah again in the 7th chapter, there's this prophecy again that was written 700 years before Jesus came. And in the 14th verse of the 7th chapter, it says, there, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, and behold, a virgin, Mary, it doesn't say Mary, but a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. You remember what Emmanuel means? God with us. We sing it in the songs. We read it in the passages. God with us. And so he is man because he's born of woman, but he is also God. If you go back to Matthew in, in the first chapter, in the 20th through the 23rd verses, we see that he's going to be born of a woman. And we read it a little while ago. It says, but when he had considered this, speaking to, to uh, Joseph, heard that Mary was pregnant, and he said, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her, in this woman, is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And it's because he is fully God, that means he's perfect, and he's fully man, he takes our place, he's our perfect sacrifice. That's the gift. That's the gift. I would hope when you stop and think about the wonderful person of Jesus, you would think of the fact of his holiness. That you would think of the fact that he is fully God, but that he was born of woman and he's fully man. If you miss that, that's where we fail to understand what we truly believe. You need to understand who Jesus is. So important that we get that. Another way he is wonderful is in his purpose. Why did he come? And uh, certainly we would say he came to seek and save the lost. It says that he was to be our savior. Those are the things he wanted. But he also came beyond that. And they sang about it this morning. He came as royalty. He came as a king. And uh, I think sometimes when we get so caught up with the baby, we forget the royalty. We forget the fact that he is a king, that he is our king. He governs. He will govern. The, the government, it says, if we go back to our passage, it says the government will be on his shoulders. Uh, it's authority. Authority over all things. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen says, all authority is given to me. So he's appointed king. And you remember when the Magi came? 
They came bearing those gifts, didn't they? Did you remember what they were? The early fathers gave them three meanings. Gold had to do with his deity. Frankincense had to do with his holiness. And myrrh had to do with his death. They would use myrrh as an embalming fluid. And so we look at those gifts and they were symbolic. I don't know that the, the magi realized that they were, but they, they give us some symbolic idea of who Jesus was. And, and he's called king. In fact, if, when he went before Pilate, Pilate said, are you a king? And he said, yeah, I'm a king, but not of this world. And we need to understand the deity of Jesus Christ. We need to understand that he came to take back his kingdom. When Jesus, the Father, created the world, they created it, and, and it was his kingdom. And Satan came along and said, I want to be greater than Jesus, or I want to be just as high as the Father is. And in essence, in some ways, he usurped the, the kingdom away. It says he's the prince of the power of the air. But when Jesus went to the cross, he defeated him, and he's taking back his creation in humanity and also his kingdom, his authority. And, and I think it really comes back to what it is going to be in the future. I, I think of Jesus coming back someday, and it's amazing. And uh, when he returns, he's going to come as a conquering hero. And in Revelation chapter 19, uh, it, it talks about his return with, uh, with the army that is with him. And in 11 through 16, it says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. This is Jesus coming back. And in righteousness he judges and wages war, and his eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, and he has the name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. It goes back to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was with God, and here it proclaims it's the Word of God. And, and the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it, he, will, he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress and the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe, on his thigh, he has written the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I just thought of what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back, and he's going to set up his kingdom here on the earth. You go back to Isaiah in the 22nd chapter, it, it gives you a little idea of the peace that is going to be there that we do not experience today. But in Isaiah 22, verse 21 through 22, I, I just thought about what it's like when he comes back and he sets up that millennial kingdom. Well, that's not the one I wanted. So, but I wanted to get a picture of, of what it's going to be like and the peace that he's going to bring. And it's, it's amazing what it's going to be like. Let me just read this because I think it's a great passage. Isaiah 22, uh, 21 and 22, it says, I will clothe him with your tunic and tie a sash surely about him and I will entrust him with your, your authority and he will become the father of the inhabitants of Judah and the house of Judah 
and uh, he's going to set the key to the king, the house of David on his shoulders, and when he opens, no one will shut, and when he shuts, no one will open, and he will be king in the line of David and reign on earth. And uh, so he's wonderful in his person, he's wonderful in his purpose, what he's going to do, and just looking at these titles that we have, I, I think he's wonderful in, the, in just the titles, the, the position that he has. So let's go back to Isaiah chapter 9 once again, and I just want to read through these titles and get a picture, uh, a little bit of how God displays Jesus to be. It says in the sixth verse, a child will be born to us, a son will be given. We've talked about the fact that he is a gift. The government will rest on his shoulders. He's to be king. He has to have all authority. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. And uh, we just talked about that idea of being wonderful, incomprehensible, unfathomable, amazing. But he's to be a counselor. Wonderful counselor. Do you know what? Jesus doesn't need any guidance. He doesn't need anyone telling him how to reign or what to do or what we think he should do. A lot of people like to tell him what to do. He doesn't need our help. But he will counsel you. You know, it's easy to go humans and, and, and get counsel and want to be told uh, what you should do in your marriage, what you should do in, in life, what you should do in your business, how you should live your life. And a lot of times the advice we get isn't the best. Not always the way it should be. But in the Bible, there are a couple of verses that just stand out to me when I think of a counselor. And one of them is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight. Trust God. It isn't always what others would say. But it's what God says. He says in Psalms 132, I will instruct you and teach you with my eye upon you. I will guide you. I'll give you guidance. And so he is this wonderful counselor. If you want to know how to live and what to do, go back to the Bible. Go back to what God says and, and what he determines should be true. And, and it makes all the difference in the world. I, I, I think of a situation in the Bible. There was a situation where David had this wonderful kingdom and his son Solomon came along and Solomon the Lord came to him and he said Solomon what would you like me to give you and Solomon says oh wisdom Lord wisdom to guide these people I'm so young and I don't know exactly how to guide them so I need your counsel and God we're told gave him great wisdom but in his wisdom he made some mistakes he married too many wives he had too many women in the house I'm not sure how they all got along. You got a thousand of them living there together. I'm not sure how it went, but Solomon began to worship their gods, and he turned from his God. And as a result, God said, I'm going to take the kingdom away, not from you, but from your son. But I will leave a remnant. I'll leave a part of the kingdom, Judah and Benjamin, those two tribes, for your son. But the rest are going to go to somebody else because of the fact that you've rejected me. And so Rehoboam, his son, came into power, and he was the authority over all of the nation of Israel. And he thought, how do I rule? How do I reign? What should I do? And he began to call in counselors, and that's what a lot of politicians do. They call in their counselors, don't they? They want to know, what, what should we do? How should we rule the people? And uh, Rehoboam did that. 
He called in some of the older, wiser individuals that had counseled his father that had been serving with him, and they gave him counsel to, you know, back off, be kind to the people, build a relationship with them, show them love, meet their needs, care about them, don't tax them so heavily. Rehoboam thought, well, I got I to gotta talk to somebody else. So he went and got his friends. They were all young. They were kind of arrogant and proud, and they said, oh, no, Rehoboam, that's not the way to do it. You need to really put the, the test to them. You need to really force them to get to work and work for you and tax them heavy and, you know, make yourself rich as a result of the people. And so Rehoboam kind of like that. He says, man, I'm going to make some money here. I'm going to do well. And the nation rebelled, and he lost ten tribes because he listened to the wrong counsel. And I would tell you today that we have a wonderful counselor. That's what the scripture says, and he is there for us. And we go to for his counsel, and what does he say? The next thing it says, he is a mighty God. That term mighty has a military designation. It talks about him being a warrior, a divine hero, an invincible cha- uh, champion. And... Uh, Christ is the one with whom all power is given, and he has that. And again, we have that, that story of David and Goliath. And if you watched any football games or basketball games, in time you'll hear some sports commentator talking about David and Goliath. And it's the, the little guy against the big guy, the, the one who should lose versus the one who has all the power. Goliath, of course, is the one with all the power. You remember how that story went? Goliath came out. They were at war. Israel and the Philistines, they were on the hillsides above this valley where they would do the battle, and for a month, they would stand at either side of that valley, and they'd yell at each other. I don't know if they thought they'd scare each other or what the deal was, but they would, they would do their war cries and, and different things. And then out of the Philistines would come this giant, well over nine, probably about nine feet, six inches tall. He was huge, and he was battle-worn. And he had experience, and he carried all of the weapons. And the men of Israel would turn and flee before him. And he would, he would make fun of them, and he'd make fun of their God, and they had no power, and David came down, and he was just a young man. He, he wasn't very old. He'd been keeping, taking care of sheep for his dad, and he'd run down there to, to take some food to his brothers, and he heard Goliath come out, and he said, whoa, whoa. Who is this guy, this this pagan, that he should speak this way to the the army of God and and speak this way to about God? Wanted to know what would happen, and and word got around, and he finally went to Saul, the king, and and he, he said, I'll go fight him. I'm not afraid of him. And he said, why? How can you do this? You, you don't have any experience. You've never done this. David said, man, God helped me kill a bear when he was going to get my sheep, and, and he helped me kill a lion when he was going to get my flock, and if God could take care of me with a sheep and a lion, he can surely take care of me with this pagan Philistine. And Saul told him to go in the power of God, and he did. Because, you see, God is a mighty warrior. And when we go in the power of God, we need not be fearful. The scripture is filled with passages that talk about not being fearful, not to be anxious, not to allow our surrounding circumstances to overwhelm us because we face them in the power of God. 
That's where we need to be today. You know, when we do this men's study, it's, it's talking about what is, one question they ask, what is the most courageous thing you've ever done? As a man, are you courageous? Are you willing to stand up for your family? Are you willing to make a difference in the face of people who may make fun of you or may say things about you? Are you willing to do the things that need to be done? And that's what we need to understand is that God gives us that courage. And he said it's, he's a mighty warrior. He is a, one who meets the needs of our life. Talks about him being the everlasting father. I, I think of a father, and I think of the intimacy of the relationship between a child and a father whose father has a right relationship with him. Before my father went home to be with the Lord, he would call me every week. Just wanted to know how it's going. What's happening, Andy? I care about you. I'm praying for you. There was an intimacy there. And, and we would talk every week. Sometimes it would be two weeks but the amazing thing is, you see, I, I have this everlasting father, and he was here before I was, and he will be there for eternity. And he cares about me way more than my dad did. And I talk to him way more than I talk to my dad. And I am more open with him than I ever was with my dad. Because you have a father, and I have a father who loves us. And that's what it's talking about when it talks about Jesus. He's not just a baby in a cradle. He's not just a baby in a manger. He isn't just someone hanging on a cross. But he is the everlasting father. And then it says he's the prince of peace. Jesus is the prince of peace. Peace has to do with welfare. It has to do with completeness. It, it's the idea that, that, that it lacks discord and disunity. He's a commander that brings peace. That... that that prince gives him that idea of authority and a commander. He brings unity. When we follow him, there is unity. And boy, we could use a lot of that today. I don't know how many of you, I didn't listen to very much of what went on with the impeachment, but we're so divided, and our leaders are so divided. And the only one that will ever bring peace is Jesus Christ. That's where it's going to come from. He is the commander of peace. He promises peace in John the 14th chapter in the 27th verse. Fourteen twenty-seven. it says, and this is Jesus speaking, he says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give it to you. Not as we see happening today in America. Do not let your heart be troubled. Do not let it be fearful. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It talks about that in Romans, the, the uh, fifth chapter. As we come to Romans 5, in that, that very first verse of Romans 5, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, when we have faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We were enemies, but now we have been made to be at peace with him. In verse 8 through 10, It says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than, much more than having been, now been justified by his blood, we have been saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, there it is, we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, 
That's the present that God gave. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And I just want to say we're never going to totally have peace on earth. Uh, we see that evidenced in, in how people get along and what they do. But there is going to be a time that there's going to be peace on earth. He is the, the bringer of peace. He is the power of peace. And in Isaiah, I, I love this picture, Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11, it speaks a little bit of what it's going to be like in the millennial kingdom. When Jesus sets up his kingdom for a thousand years, talks about that at the end of Revelation, gives specific statement in terms of how long it's going to be. But in Isaiah 11, 6 through 9, listen to it. A wolf will dwell with a lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And the little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze and the young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox and the nursing baby will play in the hole of the cobra and the weaned child will put his hand in the viper's den and they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord and the waters cover the sea. You don't put those animals together today. Uh, you go to the zoo, go down here to the Oakland Zoo or San Francisco or go over to Sacramento, and, and you'll notice that they have these places where they may have the zebras and the antelope and uh, some of those. Maybe there's some small places for things like rabbits and different things, kangaroos. But have you ever noticed they never put the lions and the leopards and the uh, tigers and any of those big cats in with them? Did you notice that? You know Why? Because pretty soon they won't have the antelope and uh, the zebra and any of those. They'll be gone. They'll be extinct in that pen. But when Jesus comes back, it'll be different. And your children and your grandchildren will play with the cobra and with the viper and with the lion and with the tiger and with the bear because Jesus brings complete peace. Not just peace among men but peace among the entire creation. And so when we look at Jesus, we begin to get an idea that he is this amazing being. It says he's wonderful. He is truly awesome. He's a wonderful counselor. He's ever-present. He, he's a wise guide. He's a mighty God. He's our divine protection, our divine hero. He's the eternal father. He's an un, unfailing source of love and care, and he's the prince of peace. And truly, God is, is wonderful. How do you see Jesus today? Is he powerless? Is he just a baby in a crib? Or is he the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace? How do you view Jesus? Is he someone you can go to in time of need? Or do you begin to look for all kinds of other things to meet the need? On earth, he didn't present himself as much. There's an old poem that I like. It says, here's a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30, and then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never owned a home. 
He never had a family. He never went to college. Huh. He never put his foot inside a big city. He, he never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He had nothing to do with the world except the naked power of his divine manhood. He had nothing to do with the world except his naked, the naked power of his divine manhood. Oh, while still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. His executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth. And while he was dying, that was his coat. When he was dead, he was taken down. And he was laid in a borrowed grave. Through the pity of a friend. Such was his human life. He was raised from the dead 21 centuries ago, 21 wide centuries. He have come and gone, and today he is the centerpiece of the human race. He is the leader of a column of progress. I am within the mark when I say that all of the armies that have ever marched and all of the navies that have ever were ever built and all of the parliaments that ever sat and all of the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this world as powerfully as has that one solitary life. Let's pray. Father, we come today, and, and it is a celebration of Christmas, and we certainly celebrate that baby that was born in a manger because he was the God-man. All the things that we've talked about today are part of who he is. And we just want to stop this morning and recognize Jesus. Came to be the Savior of the world to save those who had walked away, who had fallen away from him, but... Father, he was more than, than just a baby, and he was more than just a criminal on the cross. He was God Almighty, and he is today, and he will come back, and he will come back with power, Father, and we need to be aware of that, but, but today he is there for us. He is our king today. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. He's everything we need. We don't need anything else. And so, Father, I just want to thank you for Jesus on this Christmas 2019. For this gift that you gave to us because you loved us so much and you determined we were that valuable in your eyes. It gives us value, Father. Thank you. But first of all, I just want to thank you for Jesus. I pray that each person here would be aware of who he is and would be have an understanding of their need to have a relationship with him if they don't at this point because you gave him as a present for them and that they would know Jesus Christ as their Savior as well. We come by faith. That's what the Bible says, simply by faith. We don't pay away. It isn't that we have to give so much or do this or do that. We simply come by faith believing who he is and what he's done for us and our need for a Savior because of our sin. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.